0: Amen. So Acts chapter 2, we're going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll get into the Bible study. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 5, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when uh, this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born. Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, uh, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongue the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. Uh, the sun shall be turned into darkness the moon into blood before the great before the coming of the great and awesome day of the lord and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the lord shall be saved men of israel hear these words jesus of nazareth a man attested by god to you by miracles wonders and signs which god did through him in your midst as you yourself also know him being delivered by the predetermined or by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, having crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoices and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing God has shown Uh, sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and good and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continually, daily, uh, with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Amen. We started Acts chapter 2 a few weeks ago, and, and uh, you know, just a real brief recap of where we've been. We noted that in verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, and during the spring of the year, the Feast of Passover comes first. You know, Passover is followed by the Feast of fruits. It's always celebrated on a Sunday, the day after the first Sabbath following the Passover. Then 50 days after the Feast of Firstfruits is the Feast of Pentecost. And again, for the Jews, uh, Pentecost was a celebration of when God gave the law to the Jewish people. And verse 1 says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. And again, this is very interesting because the Jews had celebrated over 1,500 Feasts of Pentecost before this one. But this one, this Pentecost is a special one. Every single Pentecost celebration prior to this one was a picture of this one. And John in his gospel records the words of John the Baptist as he identifies Jesus saying, uh, you know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, declared Jesus to be uh, You know, the fulfillment of the prophetic picture cast by the Passover lamb. And the apostle Paul, he also identified Jesus as our Passover who was sacrificed for us. All of these Old Testament feasts, you know, are are simply and elegantly a beautiful picture pointing us to Jesus. The Passover was a celebration of redemption and deliverance, right? Being set free from the bondage the people endured there in Egypt. And Jesus was crucified on the Passover, redeeming us, freeing us from the bondage of sin, delivering us from the power of sin. Those two go hand in hand right? Jesus was crucified on the Passover and on the first day of the week, the day after the first Sabbath following the Passover, while the Jews were celebrating the feast of, of firstfruits, Jesus rose from the grave, becoming the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep, we read. Thus fulfilling the prophetic picture of the feast of firstfruits. And then 50 days now have passed, Right? Following his resurrection and we come to the Feast of Pentecost and it says the Feast of Pentecost had fully come and now the Holy Spirit is being poured out on the believers. And the church is born here in Acts chapter 2 on a Sunday, by the way. And it's very insightful to understand when the law was given the first Pentecost, 3,000 people died. Right? And yet Uh, when the day of Pentecost had fully come and the Spirit was poured out, 3,000 people are saved. And then in verse 2, it says, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven. Suddenly and unexpectedly, there was a sound from heaven, the sound, uh, you know, the sudden sound of a rushing mighty wind. But it wasn't a wind. It was like a wind, right? It was like this swift, you know, fast-paced, this powerful, moving wind, And verse 3 tells us that along with the sound of this rushing mighty wind was uh, also what appeared was divided tongues of fire. And again, it wasn't fire. It was like fire. Uh, You know, we talked about this last week, how these two manifestations, you know, assured the disciples that indeed this is the promise of the Holy Spirit being poured out. You know, the promise of the Father, which Jesus said that he would send the Holy Spirit, filling them with power from on high. That's what's taking place here. And in verse 4, it says, Then they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. And we learned last week that the sound of the rushing mighty wind and the divided tongues of fire were unique. Unique signs of the Spirit, right? No place in the Bible before this. No place in the Bible after this do we see this phenomenon. But the gift of tongues does continue uh, to this day. And we see it in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul gives us instructions in his epistles how the gift of tongues is to operate in church. And even James references the gift of tongues. Now, verse 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the pe- the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Right? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Now, we covered these verses last week. Okay, so we're not going to spend uh, much time on these at all. Uh, but, you know, if you missed last week's study, and you're interested in what the gift of the Holy Spirit's all about, you know, I encourage you to go to the website, watch that study. You know, Um But the thing that we will notice again here very quickly is that the disciples uh, spoke in tongues in other languages not previously known to them. And, uh, you know, what is it that they were saying, you know? Uh, Verse 11 says, those that were present, those that heard the disciples speaking in tongues, they heard them speaking the wonderful works of God, right? Those that were present heard the disciples speaking the wonderful words of God. In other words, the disciples were praising and worshiping the Lord. They were thanking God with all of their heart, right? All their hearts for the wonderful things He's done. They're praising Him uh, for His goodness, for His mercy. And we learned last week, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 14, 2, For he who speaks in in, uh, a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. So that's always the case. Does not speak to men, but to God. Tongues is always directed towards God, never directed towards men. It's never preaching the gospel. Every time you see the gift of tongues exercised in the New Testament, right, it's always praise. For example, Acts chapter 10, Verse 46, while Peter is preaching to Cornelius and all those that are gathered in his house, the spirit fell on those who were present. And we read, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. That's always the case. Now, Acts 2 verse 12, those, uh, so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Again, that's a, a good question. We saw last week that it meant that God was doing a new thing. Right, something new and, uh, and something new that's available to everyone. God is ready and willing to pour out His Holy Spirit on anyone, anyone, and everyone who is willing to seek His face and just ask Him for that gift, ask Him for the Spirit. Verse thirteen, um, you know, others mockingly said they're full of new wine, and they take away from this verse is to understand there's always going to be people that reject and mock what the Holy Spirit is doing in us and through us. That's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. But Peter, verse 14, standing up with 11, raised his voice. And we noted last week in the book of Acts, the most frequent recorded evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit is not speaking in tongues. It's boldness. Right? And again, you know, here we see Peter standing up and he raises his voice very boldly and he gives a biblical explanation for what's happening. Uh, you know, and, and we can't forget he's in the temple courts in front of everyone who was there that day. That means scribes and Pharisees. That means the chief priest. And we can't forget on the northern perimeter of the temple mount, is this structure called the Antonia Fortress. And the Antonia Fortress housed the Roman soldiers under the control of Pontius Pilate. So Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit, raises his voice and addresses many, if not all of those, who just a few weeks earlier were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, talk about boldness. Or as the Jews would say, maybe chutzpah, huh? You know, Uh, verse 14, Peter standing up with the 11, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. In other words, Peter is saying, you know, that's just crazy to think that these guys are are drunk. You know, how, how could it even be possible? No Jew would eat or drink anything before nine in the morning or uh, the third hour of the day, you know, because that was just their culture. That's just how they did things. They wouldn't do it, especially on a feast day. And to be drunk at nine in the morning means you had to start drinking, you know, seven or eight in the morning. Uh, you had to get going a little earlier. So Peter is simply saying in that verse, hey, that's just silly talk. It's just ridiculous, right? Right. In verse 16, he says, But this is what was spoken by the prophet of Joel. Peter gives them a biblical answer for what's happening in their midst. Peter takes them to the word of God. Peter points them to the prophecy that was made uh, by the prophet Joel some 700 years before Christ was even born. And I think personally, we see this throughout the the New Testament. I think that this is probably one of the greatest lessons that we need to take away from the New Testament that we need to learn. So often today, you hear people say, even people within the church will say, well, I think God is dot, dot, dot. You know, or, you know, why not do dot, dot, dot. Right? Other people... Other Christians, other churches do it. Why shouldn't we, you know? Well, I think it's a mistake of gargantuan proportions to, you know, look to our own understanding or our our own experiences, our hopes, our thoughts, or other people, other churches, to justify what we want to do or not do, right? Right? If there's no biblical basis for something that we're doing in the church, if there's no biblical basis for something that we're doing in our lives, if there's no biblical basis for something that we're thinking about doing, hey, we need to run from it. We need to abandon those those ideas right now, right? The Bible is the yardstick by which we measure everything we do. It's where... We get our understanding of who God is and what he's like. It's where we get our understanding. It's where we get our instructions on how he wants us to conduct our lives in this world. Individually, but also corporately as a church. What his church is supposed to look like. The Bible is where we clearly get instruction on how we're to relate to him as a holy God. Adhering to biblical reasons why we do or don't do things, you know, that keeps us from falling into heresy. That keeps us from from drifting into error, right? So Peter takes them back to the word of God and gives them a biblical explanation for the events that are taking place right now. Now, I think, I think, you know, Uh, there's a couple good questions to ask here, right? Where did Peter come up with this idea of looking to the word of God for an explanation? You know, I think he learned it from Jesus. Right over and over again, every time Jesus uh, seemed to be confronted with a question of somebody trying to trip him up or trying to test him, you know he would always take him back to the Word of God we We read repeatedly uh, Jesus would say things like, "Have you not read what David did? you know Have you not read in the law have Have you not read what was spoken? Have you not read in the book of Moses?" He always took those people back to the Word of God. That was the standard. That is the standard. That's our standard, right? Today, especially today in the church, I mean, there is all kinds of nonsense being preached from pulpits. You know, you don't have to, you, you don't have to repent in order to be saved. No, no. I mean, Jesus is not the only way to heaven in churches. So-called Christian churches, today, this is the things that they're teaching. You know, Jesus can be your Savior. He doesn't have to be your Lord. No, that's not necessary. Salvation's not offered to everyone, only to certain select ones, right? You can have sex before marriage if you love each other. I mean, God made sex, and He's a loving God. Of course it's okay. You know, God's okay with same-sex marriages. He ordained that kind of stuff. You know, not even to mention the health and wealth and prosperity doctrines. These are just a few of the examples of things that are being taught in churches in our town, in our area, right? Personally, personally, I don't care what anybody else thinks. What does the Bible have to say? That's all that I'm concerned with, right? That's all I care about. If we see Jesus say it, if we see Jesus teach it, if we see it in the book of Acts, if we see it in um, the epistles of the the apostles, then that's what we hold fast to. That's what we cling to. And in so doing, we'll always be on solid ground before the Lord. One of the things that I think is important to note here is Peter is going to preach this first sermon on the birthday of the church. He's going to quote Joel chapter 2. He's going to quote uh, Psalm 16. He's going to quote Psalm 110. So to me, it just raises a couple of questions, right? That I think is, is worth each of us seriously thinking through, giving some time to this, right? The first question is this. Do you think that Peter studied and prepared a sermon ahead of time this Sunday? Do you think he woke up this particular morning and said, man, I need to get some notes together. I need to prepare a Bible study because I'm going to be preaching later today. I mean, do you think that that's what Peter did? I don't think so. Then the question is, well, then where did he get the knowledge of the Word allowing him to quote some relatively obscure verses and explain them Use them as a biblical explanation for what was going on. Where did he get that knowledge? I mean, he was just a fisherman. He wasn't a a Jewish scholar or anything like that. Well, I would argue that the study of God's word became important to Peter. You know, important part of his life because he saw it was an important part of Jesus's life. And I would argue that Peter wanted to be like his Savior. He wanted to be like Jesus. I think he wanted the same grasp of God's Word that he saw demonstrated in Jesus' life. And I think that Peter wanted to fall in love with the Word of God because Jesus was in love with the Word of God. Right? Jesus said himself in John 5, uh, 39, Jesus said, you search the scriptures for in them you think that you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Right? I believe that Peter saw the place the word of God had in Jesus's life. And Peter heard Jesus say that they, the scriptures testify of him. Right? I believe that Peter saw and wanted what Jesus had. And I believe that that Peter saw the word as a way of drawing close to Jesus. It was a way of learning about him, falling more in love with him. You know, when we fall in love with with the word of God, we fall in love with the God of the word, right? So Peter, he became a man of the word. So the next question I think that's really important to, to think through is this. And I think it's an obvious question. What about you? What about me? What about all of us? Are you a man or woman of the word? You know what? Are we able to give a biblical explanation, a biblical answer to those that ask? Are you studying diligently, right? To present yourself approved of God, a worker, right? It does not need to be ashamed, rightfully dividing the word of truth. You know, is that something that you can do? Well, that's the Lord's heart for each one of us. His heart is that we would be men and women of the Word. And I just want to encourage you this morning. Please, don't neglect the reading of God's Word. And what I mean by that is, you know, I I don't mean like, you know, hey, uh, a verse here or a verse there, you know, reading five or ten minutes, you know if you have the time left over at the end of your day you know i think we need to prioritize the word of god in our lives i think it's absolutely vital for us as christians right it's the way our faith is the developed it's the way we fall deeper in love with our savior with jesus christ and it's the only anchor that's going to keep us from drifting and you know just the definition of drift drifting it's Imperceptible. You don't even know what's happening until one day you wake up and pff, you're out to see someplace. You know, if you commit to five chapters a day, five chapters a day, oh my goodness, 20 minutes. If you commit to 20 minutes a day, if you're a slow reader, if you started today, you'll read the entire New Testament by the by the new year. It's actually not that much. You know what? Can I encourage you to set a goal to read the entire New Testament by the end of the year? Uh, You know, set a goal to read through the entire Bible in 2023. Set that as a goal. Well, pastor, you know, I've read through the Bible before. Super. Do it again. Do it again. You know, I'll bet you anything you didn't exhaust everything that God had for you or wants to speak to you through his word in a single reading. You know what? God has so much more. God uses mightily, powerfully, as we're about to see the men and women who've prepared themselves by getting to know the scriptures, right? And the gift of the Holy Spirit is given to empower us that we might glorify the Lord in our daily lives and through our ministries. That's why the Holy Spirit is given to us, right? The Holy Spirit is there to enable us. He's given to us to enable us to be witnesses of Jesus Christ, to be witnesses of his tremendous goodness in our lives, to be witnesses of the truth that we found in God's word, right? And this is exactly what Peter's about to do. He's going to take those who express honest inquiries and those who uh, were mockers, he's going to take them back to the word of God and he's going to, Uh, show them all that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 16 says, but this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Now this is really important to notice as we go further. Paul doesn't say what was happening is a fulfillment of what Joel said. He says that this is what Joel was talking about when he said, you know, and goes on. The prophecy of Joel is a prophecy regarding the judgment of the southern kingdom of Judah, which is the short-term fulfillment of prophecy, right? And the time prior to the kingdom of God being established by the Messiah at the end of the age. That's the long-term fulfillment of prophecy. And in verse 17, he quotes Joel. He says, And it shall come to pass in the last days says, God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Peter quotes Joel saying, In the last days, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh and give various gifts. Peter is saying what the people were seeing, which were was the disciples speaking now the wonderful works of God in languages that weren't previously known to them, but understood by the crowd. Peter is saying that this is the same spirit that Joel spoke about. Peter is explaining to them that what they were seeing, you know, as well as what they were hearing, is evidence of a new day dawning. And what day is it? The last days. The last days. And notice in verse 17, the first part, it says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Even though Pentecost was a Jewish celebration, and Peter is speaking to Jews and Jewish proselytes here, right? He's declaring to them that God's spirit is for, for all, for the Gentiles too, by saying all flesh, right? He's declaring that God's spirit is for everyone. That would have been unbelievably shocking to all these people, right? These Jewish men and women that were there. Because the Jews thought that, that God's spirit was only for select individuals. You know, it was for the Davids. It was for the Moseses, if that's a word. It was for the Elijahs and the Eli- uh, Isaiahs, right? Right? It wasn't for ordinary Jews, and it certainly wasn't for Gentiles. But God is showing them that this is a new day. This outpouring of the Holy Spirit is for everyone who desires it, right? And we know that because Peter, in quoting Joel, says, it's for your sons and daughters. It's for the young men and old men. It's for men servants and maid servants. And right in front of all these men from 15 different geographic Uh, regions, men who have come to Jerusalem to celebrate um, the day of Pentecost, right in front of all of these men is a group of disciples made up of ordinary people filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Men, women, fishermen, tax collectors, wealthy, poor, uh, religious leaders, and laymen. And not only was God pouring out His Spirit on them and all who desire the outpouring of the Spirit, and Out of his spirit, he gives them gifts. And here what we see is the gift of tongues, along with the promise of prophecy and visions. Right? It's funny to me, and I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say this, but it's funny to me when, for whatever reason people will say it, they'll say, you know what? The gifts are not for today. They stopped with the apostles. Well, you know, and then what do they do? Is they turn you to the Bible and they quote 1 Corinthians 13 Verse 8, and it starts out, verse 8 through 9 says, Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. But we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. And they'll tell you, see, right there, that which is perfect. It refers to the Bible. But that's not true. That's not true at all. Peter says that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is for today when he quotes Joel in Acts chapter 2, right? It began on that day of Pentecost, verse 17 and 18, and continues to the end of the age, verse 19 and 20. Let's read it. Verse 19, I will show wonders in heavens above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Verse 19 and 20 are yet future. Right? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit continues from that day of Pentecost some 2,000 years ago and continues until someday in the future Personally, I believe in the very near future, right? When Jesus returns uh, in his second coming after the rapture of the church, after the seven years of of, uh, tribulation, when Jesus returns in all his glory and he returns with us, his saints, to establish his kingdom here on earth. Man, from that time frame, 2,000 years ago, until that time when Christ comes again, the gifts are for that period of time. And in the meantime... Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, wouldn't you think that Peter would have just ended his sermon right there? I mean, he's told everybody how to be saved. Just call on the name of the Lord and he'll respond to you and you'll be saved. But he hasn't told them about Jesus, right? Jesus is the only way of salvation. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. So Peter proceeds to introduce them to Jesus. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you also know. Peter tells them about the life of Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. It's the life of Jesus. Jesus, whom God confirmed to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And God confirmed him to be the Messiah by miracles, wonders, and signs that he performed right in front of your eyes, Peter says. Right in your midst. And Peter says to them, you know this is true. And verse 23, him, speaking of Jesus being delivered by the Uh, determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death. Peter speaks about the life of Jesus and then he speaks about Christ crucified. Peter tells them even though it was God's plan, you're still responsible. Right? And we need to remember that there are both Jews and Romans in that crowd that day. I mean, he's being bold. And you know what? We know today that even though it was God's plan for Christ to die on that cross for the sins of the world, each of us individually are responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It was your sin. It was my sin. It was our sin that Jesus bore on the cross. The judgment he endured was the judgment we deserved, right? And we can never forget that. We can never forget that we must remember it and allow it to shape our daily lives. In verse 24, he goes on, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now, Peter moves on and speaks of the resurrection of Jesus, right? Peter speaks of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says that 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 death had no power over Jesus, no power to hold him in the grave because he lived a sinless life. It was absolutely impossible for Jesus to remain in the grip of death, right? And it's just another proof that Jesus is the Messiah. And now Peter goes on and he gives four more proofs that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, the Savior of the world and God Almighty. It's exciting. Verse 25, for David says, concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Now Peter quotes Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11 here as his next proof that Jesus is the promised Messiah. David prophesies the resurrection of the Messiah by saying in verse 27, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor allow your Holy One to see corruption. He's speaking of the resurrection of the Messiah there. In verse 29, he goes on, "'Men and brethren,' Peter says, "'let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, "'that he is both dead and buried "'and his tomb is with us to this day. "'Therefore, being a prophet "'and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him "'that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, "'he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. "'He, foreseeing this, "'spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, "'that his soul was not left in Hades nor his flesh.'" See corruption. Now, Peter argues since David has died and was buried, and his tomb was very nearby, I mean, anybody could just go walk over and visit it, right? Therefore, he must not have been speaking of himself when he writes this in Psalm uh, 16, right? Uh, David must be speaking of someone else. This is Peter's argument, right? And David, being a prophet, was speaking. He's saying of the Messiah. It's the Messiah soul that wouldn't be left in the grave. It's the Messiah's body that wouldn't see corruption, that it wouldn't undergo the the process of decay. Which, by the way, really begins after the third day. How interesting is that? Peter is saying that the resurrection of Jesus is proof that he's the Messiah, the Holy One of God. And Paul confirms this fact. In Romans 1, 4, saying that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection uh, from the dead. And Peter moves on and now gives his second proof that Jesus is the Messiah. It's found in verse 32. He says, this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Right? Peter is declaring that all of the disciples that were there, all of them had seen Jesus alive after his crucifixion. And as I've pointed out to you many times, I, this is a go-to verse for me when I'm witnessing. Verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6 says, After, speaking of Jesus' resurrection, he was seen by over 500, 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained uh, to the present. There are many, many witnesses that would corroborate the fact that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the dead. And Paul is saying here in this verse, don't bother taking my word for it. I mean, you know what? Go out and, uh, you know, talk to all these other people that have seen him. And we need to remember, and this this is these types of arguments that are just subtle and so profound, We need to remember in the Jewish mind, to the Jewish person, in the Jewish culture, everything is confirmed by two or three witnesses. Here's 120 right in front of you. Paul says there's over 500 of them over there. Just go talk to them, right? There's a whole lot more. Peter's third proof now that Jesus is the Messiah. It's found in verse 33. Let's look at it. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you see and hear. What Peter is saying here is the Holy Spirit being poured out, which you yourselves are witnessing right now, right, is proof that Jesus is alive and in heaven, sending the promise of the, uh, the, promise of the Father, sending the Holy Spirit, which is given to all flesh. The fact that this is going on proves that Jesus is risen from the dead in heaven, bestowing this gift on all flesh. The fourth proof that Peter offers is found in verses 34 through 36. Peter says, for David did not ascend into heaven, into the heavens, but he said, uh, uh, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know surely that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, what's really interesting here, I mean, it just gets better and better. This is the kind of stuff that makes me excited. We need to understand what David says there in verse 24, Lord, all caps, right? Uh, It's the tetragrammaton, right? The Y-H-W-H in Hebrew, Right? Every place in the Bible you see Lord, all caps. It's the name of God. It's the Y-H-W-H. You know, you may pronounce it. We pronounce it uh, Yahweh, Yehovah, Jehovah. There's no hard sound like that in the Hebrew. So Jehovah is probably the least likely one. Yahweh, Yehovah. So David is saying here though, Jehovah God said to my Lord, David's Lord, referring to the Messiah, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Right? Just a side note, by the way, this is the most frequently quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Some 25, 35 times this verse is quoted in the New Testament or alluded to in the New Testament. Now, it's absolutely vital for us to understand, right? Right? no Jew would ever call his son Lord. It just doesn't happen, right? The son was never seen to be greater than the father. That was their culture. That's just their custom. You might remember Jesus stopped the Pharisees, you know, who came uh, to him in an effort to trip him up in his speech with this very question. If the Messiah, Jesus' response to their question, if the Messiah is just a son, just a descendant of David, Why does David call him Lord? David was the greatest king in the history of Israel. He was, you know, so to speak, the gold standard of the kings of Israel. And David, King David, calls the Messiah his Lord. The reasoning is, if David calls the Messiah his Lord, or in other words, his master, right? Then the Messiah must be something more than just a son. And the only possible conclusion is that David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew that the Messiah was greater than he was. David declares clearly that the Messiah would be the son of David and his Lord and master at the same time, right? That he would be both human and divine. That's the only conclusion, right? But here's what's really interesting. I find this the most interesting. When the ancient Uh, Hebrew scriptures was translated into the Greek language, the common language of the day, right? It it was translated in what's called the Septuagint. You see it identified in your, (coughs) excuse me, in your margin notes by the Roman numerals LXX, meaning 70 because it was translated by 70 elders of Israel, some 250, 300 BC, right? It was a common translation of the Jewish scriptures used at the time of Jesus, But when you look at this verse, Psalm 110 verse 1, in the Septuagint version, the translators use the same word referring to Jehovah as they used to refer to the Messiah, right? The implication is that David, not only the greatest king of Israel, but also a prophet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, prophesies saying that Jehovah God calls the Messiah, Jesus, God also. Now, again, I'm not very smart, but if God calls Jesus God, I mean, that's the end of the argument to me. That that just sums it up right there. That's a drop the mic moment and walk off the stage, right? So verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Christ comes from the Greek word that means Messiah. So what Peter is saving here is Saying here is let all the house of Israel know for certain that God the Father not only considers Jesus, whom you crucified, by the way, God the Father considers him to be the Messiah, the Master, but he also considers him to be God. Now, you want to look down and see this, okay? Peter is linking Lord, all caps, verse 21. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord and Jesus, the Messiah, verse 34, the Lord said to my Lord, right? Peter's linking those two together saying, when you call on the Lord, all caps, you're calling on Jesus for salvation. I mean, because he's both verse 36, Lord and Messiah. I mean, it's a little bit technical uh, for an argument, but it's beautiful And it's actually beyond brilliant. In verse 37, Peter go, uh, you know, the story goes on. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Everyone that was present that day heard the disciples speaking the wonderful works of God. They heard Peter stand up and share boldly the life, the uh, crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus. And thirdly, they heard the word of God explaining, uh, explained accurately and irrefutable the events that were going on. And the result was that these people were cut to the heart. They were convicted by the Holy Spirit. And you know what? Personally, I believe if we will speak of the wonders of God, you know who He is and what He's done for us, if we will boldly share his love with others, share the message of his life, his death, and his resurrection, right? The message of the cross. You know what? We'll see people convicted and they'll ask us to pray for, with them to receive Christ as their savior. Because this is the spirit-inspired, effective order Peter shared on the day of Pentecost as an example for us. And you might want to notice, they ask, what shall we do? When people came to John the Baptist and asked the very same question, John the Baptist said, well, if you have two tunics, why don't you give one of them to to somebody that doesn't have any? And when the tax collectors came to him and asked the same question, he said, don't collect more and what's necessary. And then when the soldiers came to John the Baptist and asked him, hey, what should we do? He said, be kind and compassionate, right? And when they came to Jesus in John chapter six and asked him a similar question saying, what shall we do that we would do the works, plural of God, Jesus answered and said to them, you know, the verse said that this is the work singular of God that you believe in him whom he sent. People often ask, hey, you know, what should I do? What shall I do? But, you know, that's the way we see things. That's, that's how we see it, you know. There's got to be something that I can do that I can be worthy. Something that I can do to, to earn, you know, heaven. You know, be worthy of salvation. So what do I have to do? Just tell me so I can go out and do it. That's all I need to know. Just tell me. The message of the cross is it's already done. You know what? All anyone has to do is just believe that it's finished. The work of the cross it's a finished work. It's paid in full. All we have to do is believe it and receive it. In verse 38, then Peter said to them, "Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and you shall be uh, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." Repent just means to turn from, to turn around. Before I was saved, I was headed, you know, down a path of destruction. Then I repented. I made a U-turn and headed in the opposite direction. I turned from my sin, turned my back on my sin, and I turned towards God, right? That's all that repentance means. And the opportunity to repent, man, that is a gift of God given to each one of us, right? And Peter simply tells them that, everyone that was present that day, if you'll just change direction, if you'll repent of rejecting the Messiah, right? And then receive Jesus as your Lord and then be baptized in the name of Jesus, you know, then you'll receive the Holy Spirit too. People will use this verse here and say, see, baptism is required for salvation because it says, baptize in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. But the word that's translated for, right there, the Greek word is the word eis, E-I-S. And the better translation for that word is sense. So the better translation of the sentence is, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, since you have received the remission of your sins. Baptism is a commanded in the Bible for all believers. We're to be baptized after we understand that we've sinned and fallen short. And we've come to believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And uh, we're to be baptized after we place our faith in Christ alone as our Savior. That's when we're to be baptized. Baptism is not unto salvation, but it's out of obedience. Salvation only comes through faith in Christ. Baptism is a public declaration. Both then, Acts chapter 2, and now that we've aligned and associated ourselves with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, right? With Christ, we have died with him. We've been buried in the waters of baptism, right? We've been raised a new creation uh, in him. We've been raised with him to to new life. And Peter says, if you'll do that, if you'll repent, right? Right? And be baptized. Since you've been forgiven of your sins. right? Then you too will receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 39. For the promise is to you. And to your children. And to all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God will call. The Holy Spirit is for all believers. Jew. Gentile. Men. Women. Old. Young. Rich. Poor. You. Your kids. Just as Joel prophesied. Now. Somebody might say, you know, Gary, I read Acts chapter 2, 14, verse 39, and it only took me about two minutes. And you've been going on now for quite some time, almost an hour. Well, I'd like to point you to verse 40. Verse 40 says, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Verse 14 through 39 is just a synopsis of what Peter said that day. And it's actually what we need to remember. It's just the it's boiled down to what we need to remember when we're sharing the Lord. We need to speak of God's goodness, speak of the life of Christ, his crucifixion, his resurrection. And we need to be bold and have a good understanding of the word of God, be able to give a biblical answer to questions that come from honest inquirers, right, as well as mockers. And I believe the promise of the Bible is if we will be diligent to share these things, right, when we're witnessing to friends, families, family members that don't know Jesus, strangers that God brings into our life, if we'll be diligent to witness uh, and share these things with them, then they're gonna repent of their sins, right? And they'll ask us to pray with them to receive Christ as their Savior. Verse 41 Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Pentecost for the Jewish people was a celebration of the law when it was given. Paul tells us in Romans that the law brings death. The more legalistic we are, the more dead and sterile our walks with the Lord will be. Paul goes on to tell us in 2 Corinthians that it's the spirit that gives life. So the more that we live and walk in the spirit, the more alive our walks will be with the Lord, right? They'll just explode. Verse 42, and they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and and prayers. And I mentioned this many times. This is what God wants for us as a church. This is his heart for us. This is the example that God sets out for us of what a church is to look like. And we need to be hearers of the word, not forgetful doers of the word. Right? Verse 43, then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now, all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. They weren't communist or socialist, as some people claim. They were commonist, right? They shared, they were looking out for the needs of others. You know, they were helping each other, they were loving on each other. And again, this is God's heart for us as a church. This is is my prayer for us, that this would become who we are. There are plenty of people in the world and in this body that need our prayers, need your prayers. You know, there are people that are hurting and struggling in our little fellowship. You know, there there are uh, marriages in our church that are struggling. You know, let's pray and ask God to give us his eyes, to give us his heart to enable us to reach out to people effectively in His name. Verse 46, So continually daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. When God wants us to take note of something really important in the Bible, what does He do? He repeats it. Right? The result... Uh, Well, verse 42, uh, continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, breaking bread and prayers, that's repeated in verse 46, right? And the result of making this a priority in our life is found in verse 47. The Lord added to the church daily, right, those who are being saved. You know what? Again, I want to encourage us as a body. Let's make this a priority, Let's invite people over for dinner. Invite them to lunch. Invite them out to coffee. Let's love on one another. I know, you know what, it takes effort. And I know it can be difficult. You got to clean the house. You got to make a lunch. You know, that that you're not embarrassed about. You know, it can't be peanut butter and jelly. Although I like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. You know, Uh, but you know, it takes effort. But the result is so worth it. The, what God will bring out of it is so amazing. It's so worth it. And we're, as we're more and more willing to engage and reach out to others with the love of Christ, the world will know that we're His disciples. You know, plans and programs will not, cannot accomplish what loving one another can accomplish. What being men and women of the Word can accomplish. Let's go forward in the name of Jesus. you know let's go forward in the, in the love of Christ. Let's be men and women uh, that place an importance on the word of God. You know let's speak of God's goodness. Let's uh, love him and speak of his love for us, His grace extended to us. Let's speak with boldness of Jesus Christ. you know with, with everybody we run into, let's speak of his life his death his resurrection. Let's show the world the truths that are found uh, in the Bible, the truths that we believe. And let's continue as a fellowship in the apostles' doctrine, which is just teaching the word. You know, in fellowship, hanging out with one another, loving on each other, uh, you know, eating together. And let's be people given to prayer, waiting on the Lord, For the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. Let's be praying how the Lord would have us reach out to this community. How he would have us, uh, you know, minister to the hurting and the lost in this world. And let's be doers of the word. Not just hearers only. You know, I believe if we'll do this, I believe it with all my heart. If we'll do this, God will use us mightily. That's what the book of Acts is all about. God uses ordinary people extraordinarily. And the more we're willing to be used, the more he'll use us. The more we commit to these things, he'll do greater and greater and greater things in our midst. And we'll say, Lord, you're so good to use someone like me. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you so very much for your goodness and your grace. that has been bestowed upon each one of us. Lord, I'm so thankful for the ministry that you've called each one of us to. We're all in full-time ministry, Lord. Help us develop it, the ministry that you've called us to, the ministry you've entrusted us to. Help us develop it for your glory by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.